Every marriage goes through tough times and crisis, but imagine being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness for a third time. That's what happened to Glenn and Debbie Kirkpatrick, and today they share their story and how they overcame cancer together. The Legendary Marriage Podcast begins now. If you're feeling more like roommates than soulmates, it's time for the Legendary Marriage Podcast. Every couple wants to have a great marriage, but the trials and challenges of life pull us in different directions. So we talk with amazing couples who share their stories and incredible experts who share their wisdom about building a life together. And at the end of every show, we give you a conversation starter so you and your spouse can build more intimacy and connection in your marriage by having conversations that matter. Hello there, legendary marriage family. Welcome to the show. This is Danielle and Justin. And whether you've been listening for a long time, or maybe this is your first time, we're so glad you're joining us. Yes, this is episode 85, and our guests today are Glenn and Debbie Kirkpatrick. They are the authors of a book called Overcome, a story of intervention, rescue, and redemption. And Danielle got a chance to connect with them and hear their story and how they survived Glenn's repeated diagnosis of cancer and how they persevered and came together and got even stronger than ever. And they're going to share how they would never have picked this journey, but walked away from it with so many blessings. And they're going to share all of that in our conversation. Just like Glenn and Debbie, every couple goes through some sort of a crisis. Yes, absolutely. There's always some ordeal on the horizon, a challenge of some kind. And it will either draw you closer together or drive a wedge between you. We've done both. We've done both. And I think largely it's about how you choose to stand in it with, with your spouse. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can choose to let it drive, drive a wedge between you, or you can choose to stand shoulder to shoulder and, and stay on the same team. And This and reminds me of all my favorite rom-coms. Yes. Okay, so something happens. They're about to, you know, miss each other. There's a misunderstanding. There's some sort of a crisis. There's a montage of each of them walking in different directions through <laughs> through a season of life. And then they somehow make a choice to come back together, and there's a happy ending. The funny best friend says, oh, you didn't know? That was just a joke. And then they go running towards each other and they meet each other in the middle of some random public place and if only the, the music r- swells. If the, only the writers of rom-coms would live with us and remind us to intentionally come back together, um, I think that would be helpful. Let's, yeah. We could learn a lot from them. But we could learn a lot from Glenn and Debbie Kirkpatrick and yes. the story of how they had the perspective of just looking at the blessings um, that they had in three-time diagnosis of cancer. So let's just get to our conversation with Glenn and Debbie. All right. We are so happy to have Glenn Kirkpatrick and his wife, Debbie, on the show today. They have their home in San Diego, California. They've been married over 37 years. They have three adult children, two grandkids, and Glenn is a three-time 31-year cancer survivor, living with the late effects from radiation and chemo, but he enjoys sharing what he's learned 
on how to persevere in life and finding joy in each day and living in each moment. And Glenn and Debbie even wrote a book together called Overcome. I love that title. A story of intervention, rescue, redemption, our cancer survivorship journey. Welcome to the show, Glenn and Debbie. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you so it's much. wonderful to be, be talking with you. Okay, so a three-time cancer survivor. I mean, that has got to feel like you got dealt the wrong deck somehow. Yeah, I often describe it as being kicked in the head and then and being kicked ahead in the head again and then going, wait a minute, did not did I not learn what I was supposed to learn the first time and then kicked ahead, kicked in the head again. And we try to have fun with it now. In in our faith, though, I look back and go, okay. Okay, we're being refined. We were learning things. Difficult. We would have never invited into our lives, uh, but it, but it came. So yeah, I lo- it's it's so crazy that you say that. Like you never would have wished this. You never would have invited that story. But yet the the blessings, which we'll get to later, you talk about like all the blessings that came out of the story that you didn't want. <laughs> So wait, how did you guys meet to begin with? You all have been married for a long time. So how did you meet and fall in love in the beginning? It's a beautiful story and the book opens with it. So Debbie? Well, it's kind of a crazy story. I was a waitress at a 24-hour restaurant in Manhattan Beach, California. And I worked the night shift and Glenn was a rookie police officer that came in on his breaks. So when he came into the the restaurant, I uh, was trying to fix him up with a girlfriend of mine and she would come (laughs) in the restaurant and want to talk to him. And he clearly was not interested in her. Glenn, were you just coming for the free coffee? Like what was this? What was this all about here? The only restaurant open all night. Oh, okay. Then okay. I was coming to see Debbie. Oh, so the, the the girlfriend, it was no bueno. So you had your eye on Debbie already, huh? It's true. <laughs> so and how did you go from there, Debbie? Well, he was much too proper to uh, invite me on a date while he was in uniform. And I worked another job during the day at a pet store in a, in a mall uh, in Torrance, California. And he came in to buy a collar for his dog. I don't think his dog really needed a collar. He just came in. But I did have a dog. <laughs> he did have a dog. And uh, then asked me out on our first date. And I was oh, like, oh, and had you had your eye on him? Did you know this was coming, Debbie? No, I really didn't. Because I was really trying to fix him up with my girlfriend, which was kind of the funny part of it. And then I was like, well okay, let's go on a date. Let's see how this goes. And Were you uh, at all worried about dating a cop? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> I was a little apprehensive about that, although he was very handsome and he looked very good in, in his uniform, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's always a hook. That's always yeah. a hook for the ladies, for sure. So now in your... So you started dating from there, the girlfriend... <laughs> Forget about her. Yeah. I mean, she ended up being in our wedding, which is kind of funny. But, um, you know, she moved on. She she forgave me for stealing the her love interest. 
Yeah. Her uniform. She's yeah. uniform. <laughs> um, now, how did you guys have any cool dating stories from the early years? Did you have any cool dates that you went on? Uh, well, our first official date, we had kind of like some mini dates, but I call this like our first official date. We went to a Chinese food restaurant in um, Gardena, California. And I had never been to such a restaurant where they have, you know, these personal booths. And so I think he was really trying to woo me. And we drank these, this huge scorpion drink out of a shell with two straws. So it was quite romantic. There were no, there were no scorpions in it. They called it the scorpion. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're freaking me out, you guys. Seriously, like... I live in Texas, so scorpion is a real oh. part of my life here. Yeah. I don't know. In California, are scorpions real in your world? Oh, yeah. Yes, actually, yes. I've yeah, actually I've actually been bitten by a scorpion before when I put on a pair of jeans. I'm not going to go into too many details, <laughs> but it was horrifying. It was oh, horrifying. Oh, sorry. Yeah. But that was quite a romantic date. And oh, then, yes, yes. The romantic scorpion drink. Okay, yes, let's get yes. back to that. Yes. And um, four days after that first date, Glenn asked me to marry him. What? Four days. Glenn, what was going on? That scorpion drink go to your head or what? Well, I wanted to be sure. <laughs> you wanted to lock it down, lock it down right? So... Um, so he's a cop. He doesn't mess around. Nope. Got right to it. I did ask, and Debbie said yes. And what we like to say now, I know, go ahead, as you get your head around it, is today, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what would come. <laughs> That's um, obvious. We don't That's teach obvious. our kids, yeah, you know, all the things. We don't teach our kids that. We, <laughs> young dating couples that we know, we don't say, hey, take your time. You know, it's for life. But it's fun that that's our story because that's what happened. I mean, and I was, I was amazing. Okay. You have to tell me how on earth did you say yes after four days? Like, what did you recognize about each other that this was really the one after four days? Like, I just have to really know this. Well, he treated me like nobody else has ever treated me uh, like a queen. And he still does to this day. Um, he is very respectful, extremely kind and loving. And I was like, this is the one. I mean, sometimes you just know, right? Mm. How about you, Glenn? What, what gave you the inclination that after four days, this was a good idea? I'm a different person now. <laughs> so, and that's good. But I had to think, you know, think back and go. And what I found myself thinking is, uh, fun-loving, kind, beautiful. She was conversive, not all about herself, like at the restaurant, because she was working. Our dates were fun, and I noticed a friendship was being built from the first time we were together. And then after our first date, we were together every day. So... Just made sense, huh? Yeah, yeah. Just grew to love Debbie and thought, boy, let's spend every day together. Yeah. Okay, so so you guys got married, obviously, pretty quickly. So what did you think? Now, obviously, we know the story took some crazy turns that you would have never anticipated. But in those early days when you're, you know, you're getting married, you're first married, 
what did you think life was going to be like together? I don't think I thought about too much in the future. We enjoyed being together, married. Our family supported us with love. I mean, not financially. <laughs> we lived on a duplex by the beach. Both had our careers. So I think day to day, we began to, we're able to afford a home mortgage. Yeah, then we we're thinking home, our first child. And then that, that began to unfold. So family together, buying a house together, you know, just kind of the American dream kind of picture. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously at some point here, you said you're a three-time cancer survivor. You did get your first diagnosis of cancer. And do you mind telling us what the two of you were feeling in that moment, how life changed? Maybe just to set it up. So we were married in... February, February 14th, 1981. We've married six years when I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, now known as Hodgkin's lymphoma, a cancer in the lymphatic system. So flat out shocked, bewildered. You know, the feeling that one can have is things are fine and then wham, overwhelmed. And then there's the maybe not maybe not always thinking, but you're definitely feeling of having to navigate through testing, surgery, and radiation treatments. But mainly at first, shocked, bewildered, uncertain. And the thoughts that I I was going to die, I might die. Debbie would not have her husband anymore. And our son, Russell, was two. Mm -hmm. He grew up without his father. So it was this whole mix of, you know, survival mode and yeah, and for me, of course, all those same feelings, um, overwhelmed, afraid, uh, what's tomorrow going to bring, uh, will he survive, even the diagnostic surgeries. I mean, it was pretty overwhelming <clears throat> when you go to, the, to have some tests done because you think something's not that big of a deal, a little fatigue, maybe a little lump here, but um, then you find out that he has cancer from his neck all the way into his abdomen. All the lymph nodes along there were affected. Yeah, we were actually shown the x-ray and if something's going to do it right, that's, huh? Yeah, it was shock. That was a real shock, yeah. I mean, he was only 30 years old. He was a young man. How did your relationship between the two of you shift with that diagnosis? I would say that we got closer. We needed to communicate more. We appreciated each other more. When your life is threatened, you have a greater appreciation for what you have in one another. At that time, we were not yet Christians, so we had no faith. Um, we went to support groups for cancer patients, and that was an eye-opening experience, seeing people going, not just us, but other people going through chemotherapy and radiation and trying to make sense of it all without faith was very trying time for us, but it did draw us closer to one another. Mm. Now, did you find that your roles within your family shifted at all? Like, I know you, Glenn, were a police officer and obviously probably pretty hardcore into your work. And so how did, how did you navigate that? You know, now you got to do all these tests and I'm sure you were super fatigued and all that. Like, how did your roles shift? 
I was working around initial appointments and doctor appointments and diagnostic testing. Um, and I had the, the paid time off. So at, at first, I don't, I don't recall that it was a problem in a practical or financial way. But well, I guess the way I describe it is it's, it's always at the front of your mind, always. You wake up, cancer, treatments, uncertainty, just all day, go to bed with the feelings. So that definitely creeped in. And, but sure, then it, it got to be where I needed uh, quite a few weeks, months off. I had a, uh, a major surgery in the hospital, and then there was recovering from that. I was off work every day, all day for months. So that was a shift. And the whole time, I didn't assume that I would gain remission and go back to work. It was like I knew that day. So example, recovering from the surgery, I'm at home. And like anyone that recovers from particular surgeries, you might have to kind of learn to walk again. So did I. And so I was sick with cancer and had a surgery I had to recover from. The diagnostic procedure, the um, surgery was to stage the cancer, turned out to be 3A. So um, it was all consuming. And what does that mean? What does 3A mean? Uh, that ended up being on both sides of the diaphragm. Is 3A pretty, a pretty severe diagnosis? To us, it was. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah a, lot of, a lot of the body, yeah, a lot of your immune system was involved. So I think the shift was I was fighting for my life that I never had to before. And yet it's, it's a slow rollout of each day when you get out of bed. You know, there's no hero's journey to the top of the hill. It's you're healing. It's going to take months. And then we're going to radiate you 50 times. That brought remission. God used it. I wasn't looking forward to that. Yeah. And, and then you had to learn to walk all over again. Was that, that was. Well, I had a laparotomy where you cut open from uh, pretty high up in the chest all the way down to your belly button. And with anybody you'd have to, oh yeah, my legs were fine, but I met your, you know, you're hurting and in pain and doubled over. Right, right. You so. can't really walk. Now, Debbie, what was your role in that? Were you, did you take on the caregiver role? Yes. Um, I still continued to work my regular job in a veterinary hospital, as well as take care of our two-year-old son, as well as help Glenn, you know, day-to-day -day, um, being in bed, you know, preparing meals for him and getting, you know, things together for him for a while. I was at work taking Russell to daycare and doing those type of things while he was recovering. Now, many times, uh, sad to say, uh, he, he would drive himself to radiation treatment. He would drive himself to radiation, have the radiation, and then drive home. And many times be very, very sick, you know, vomiting and just very, very Phew. ill. But I had to work. I felt like we needed the money and that I couldn't take months off to be home with him. So that was wow. a difficult time. Wow. And like, how was with your relationship? Obviously, you said the early years, you know, it sounds like we're very romantic and like love at first sight and all this kind of thing. Like, what does that romance kind of thing look like when... Glenn is bound to the bed and he can barely walk and you know you're trying to take care of him but he's super sick what does that look like well Glenn is a romantic at heart so he doesn't let those kind of things hold him down 
he would leave me little notes on the mirror in my lipstick sometimes. <laughs> You're like, not my favorite lipstick, okay? <laughs> right. You can use the old ones. Uh, he would write me notes. During that time? Yeah, all the time. Oh. He would leave me little notes on napkins and put them out on the table. Or He's always been like that, very thoughtful and still quite romantic. And then, you know, my romance for him was serving him, taking care of him, making sure his needs were met. Now, Glenn, was there ever a time when you thought, like, it sounded like with that early diagnosis, you guys were, you know, there was a lot of fear involved in the unknown and what's going to happen. Was there ever a time when you wanted to like kind of shield Debbie from, you know, certain realities of what was really going on with you or anything like that? I recall a slow roll of one day at a time, the uncertainty, not sure I would live, and you know, either recovery or being in treatment. And then when Debbie says all these nice, beautiful things, I, I was like, oh, I don't remember that during that time. <laughs> so um, You're like, I just remember trying to survive. That's what I remember. Yeah. Now, later in the journey, definitely looking to protect care. So obviously you recovered from that, that first diagnosis. Yes. Like it was a lot of ups and downs and twists and turns. Now, then you got a second diagnosis. How did that happen? November of the same year in 87, following the radiation, I gained remission. We celebrated that, rock concerts, and seven or more days days. in Cancun, Mexico. (laughs) And uh, you got to celebrate the wins when you can. Absolutely. And um, then returned home to reality. (laughs) So um, everything was different. Everything changed. I was very restless. You know, our lives had been threatened, our way of life, our marriage. We had conversations. I was so restless that I wanted to move, keep our jobs, keep our careers, but move maybe to the next county, uh, meaning maybe where we could get more land. I seemed to need space and everything different, but keep our jobs. What shifted in you that you needed more space? Oh, good point. So I just, yeah, I explain it as space, like a bigger lot or acreage. Right. What I've come to learn what it was is everything reminded me of the cancer experience where we lived. It's the same house where I recovered from the surgery, the same place where friends would come over and mow the lawn or deliver a ham. They had a particular look that they were scared, scared for me or perhaps a mortality. So everything was a reminder. I couldn't get away from it. So I thought, move away, a new place that Deb agreed, but to fast forward, we actually moved to San Diego. We moved further than we'd imagined, but yet it's not that far. And while here, and I had transferred to a new police department, and Debbie received a new job, and she was pregnant with our second son, Trevor. That fatigue, that all-too-familiar fatigue came on, and that's the first thing I thought cancer had returned. So examination labs, testing, sure enough, the lymphoma was present. What is your mind? I know the first time your mindset was like, you know, I might die. I'm going to have to fight this. You know, what was the thought that went through your mind after the second diagnosis? Perhaps not at first, but very quickly it progressed. And that was when chemotherapy was prescribed, I thought I would die because in my mind, that chemo is given to folks who are going to die anyway, but just to let them live a little bit longer. So with that mindset, where was I headed to death by the cancer? So I would come to learn that that's what's set up in my mind. And then what am I having? 
I'm driving to go have that toxic mix, mixture of chemo. What would that lead to? See, that was my mind. So it wasn't, it wasn't good. And I grew very depressed and had cancer and was having chemo. We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment, but we wanted to take a minute to talk about what it takes to build a legendary marriage. We're going to focus on community because we believe that isolation is the enemy of a legendary marriage and community is a big part of the solution. You see, the truth is your spouse cannot meet all your relational needs and it's crazy to try to make them. Doing so creates unneeded strain and codependence. It's just simply not healthy. So men need to have connection and community with other good men. And women need same with other good women. And together you need a few couples who can stand with you as you find a way over, around, or through every challenge life has to offer. See, we all long for a place to belong to, for a people to belong to, a tribe where we're supported and encouraged, where we can do the same for others. And our community on Facebook makes it easy. This is a group where you can connect with other couples who refuse to settle for an ordinary marriage. So come join the conversation. Share your ideas, insights, experiences, victories, and failures in a circle of men and women who will support and encourage you. Be a part of this movement of couples. We're transforming their marriages and families forever. It's an amazing group. We hope to see you there soon. You can find us over at legendarymarriage.com slash community. And now back to the show. It was devastating. Um, I had a six-week-old baby. Oh, my gosh. And my husband was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. And he thought he was going to die, and I thought he was going to die. So I had a four-year-old and a six-week-old baby, and I'm like, how am I, how am I going to make it through this? I don't think I can. We're in a new area where we don't know a lot of people. Well, we don't know anybody. We had friends that moved from L.A., Jay and Becky Martin, that um, were our only friends in San Diego. They had followed us down nine months after we um, moved down here. So they were our only friends. But God would use this in a powerful way um, because I was so overwhelmed. I had a friend at work that was a Christian, and she started reaching out to me and serving me. Um, watching my children, bringing us meals, just super encouraging woman and uh, really made a difference in my life. I, w- I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to read the Bible, but I saw her life and the way she loved me and it changed me and got me interested in studying the Bible and uh, making the decision to make Jesus the Lord of my life. But that was through a lot of this time where Glenn was very sick. And then he was so depressed that he had to be hospitalized. It was a very dark time. Yeah. Glenn, were you, were you suicidal or were you, you were depressed and you needed medical intervention or like, what were you, what were your thoughts at that point? Thanks for asking, Danielle. It was progressive. I grew more and more depressed. I've never been depressed in my life. I don't think I spent too much time thinking, gee, what's happening? It, it was happening. Uh, yes, thoughts to action, to um, uh, seeing clinicians, different medications for depression. We would learn, 
you know, Debbie's practically carrying my life, I guess I put it. I went with her, you know, I sat with the doctor. I, I listened, but I wasn't completely there. So I met Debbie, carried my life in a beautiful way. But I was drug resistant. It was a drug resistant depression. I've come to learn what that is. And after many opinions, prayer, electroconvulsive therapy was recommended. I complied is the word I used. You know, I didn't research it and this went along with the I was not myself. And so um thank God though, I, I complied. I went to a, a hospital here and uh they administered the electroconvulsive therapy. And the way I like to put it, and it's in the wrote it in the book, is I had an awakening. I woke up, I began to be myself. I'm leading games with these other patients of calling friends. I got to be where I'm ready to get out of here and restart my life. So um, it worked. Oh, it's like they shocked you back into life somehow. Yeah, yeah it, it, it worked. Crazy. And I was released and I still needed time, you know, a lot of respite. So you had remission from the cancer, right? And then, well, the depression lifted. And there was a lot on my plate yeah. at that time because he couldn't make the decisions for himself. And so there was... I had just become a Christian, so there was a lot of prayer uh, coming to this decision for the electroconvulsive therapy because I thought, how much could this man's body go through? He's yeah. had major surgery. He's had radiation. He's had chemotherapy. We've tried all these antidepressants that aren't working. And so I just took it to God in prayer and then... God made it clear. We went to one doctor. He recommended it. I'm like, okay, God, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I prayed about it again. We went to another doctor. He also recommended it. <laughs> Finally, the third doctor re that recommended it. I'm like, okay, we, we need to do this. Wow. Wow. And you spoke to, you know, you had this Christian friend that was just loving on you. And you said bringing you meals and all kinds of things like that. I have a question to ask about friends in this, in this circumstance where you are, you know, hanging on by a thread for those couples that are listening here, obviously everybody has a friend that needs some TLC, needs some loving care is in a dire situation. What sort of things would you both say to them to do and to please avoid doing or saying? Yeah, right. um, please be blunt with us about that. Like, does it, does you mind hearing cliches or quoting Bible verses or bringing you casseroles? What, give us the yays and the nays here. So today I'll speak from our whole experience, right? Sure. years, And then also today, as I live with late effects, chronic illness, progressive disease caused by the uh, the radiation, the chemo, because it's what I've seen work and not work is engage. Have someone, if you're afraid to say something, you know, unless somebody already told you that's not best, just say it, just do it. Like just, just bring the ham over, just leave the stuff on the porch. If nobody answers, um, just text, just call and don't expect yourself, you know, talking to someone else um, to know what to say. Yeah. In fact, you might say, the wrong thing or you might say something and then be insecure that oh my gosh did I say the wrong thing that but was what, so stupid why did I say that <laughs> but my experience is the people that have stood out 
have been the ones that have not asked. They've served, they've called, they've texted. I do appreciate when somebody says, how are you doing this morning, Glenn? I heard you were in the ER. Uh, that's so encouraging because the majority of folks won't ask. I don't know why, but out of fear, concern for their own mortality, um, they're learning to be mature and out of focus. But it's rare the person that would kind of step out like that. So, Wow, that's really shocking. Maybe is is it just because they want to like bring some levity or just have little chit chat, small talk or something like that? They don't want to face like the real thing that's going on. Yeah, with the first, it was our first time. So with the first episode, I learned that a lot of quietness or I worked light duty for a while in the police department while I had cancer. Um, people wouldn't approach or ask or when they look at me, I, I think this is in my head, but it's like they were looking through me. Mm. Looking back, I think they were afraid. They were scared it could happen to them. And was I going to die? They didn't know the latest. So I am not faulting them. That's just my experience. Yeah. Today, um, well, I take responsibility with, you know, I need to share and tell a close friend how I'm doing, feeling, thinking, because no one's a mind reader. But based on your question, I do want to say that the person that stands out is the one that initiates and knows that they're not expected to know the right thing to say or do. Yeah, just be there. Just do, say the, just talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, be a listening ear. Be a listening ear when the other person's ready to talk. They, I, I felt like during that time, I needed people to listen of the things I was going through. Not necessarily that they would have the answers. Sure. Just, just a hug, a smile, an encouraging scripture. That helped a lot with just handwritten cards. I know it's not the thing these days, even a text with, <laughs> with uh, encouraging scripture would really help. But I think some of the people that really stood out were the people that did things without us asking them to, mm. you know, they just saw a need and they met it. Like they're like, no matter what, this is what I'm doing. You can deal with it. I'm mowing your lawn. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, we had a, one of the captains at the police department in Manhattan beach a captain would come to our house and mow our lawn. And one time he got there and he had to lift the lawnmower over the fence because the, the gate was locked and he was just persistent to get, get it done. And just things like that, that were just so impactful at the time. Wow. Wow. Now, okay. So you recovered from this diagnosis and then you had a third diagnosis. Can you tell us about that? How'd that go down? About a year and a half later, guess what comes around is fatigue. I had returned to cycling and I would cycle and enjoy cycling and mm -hmm. the hills and valleys and around where we live. It, it took me more to do the same mileage and I was more exhausted each time. Again, I knew, I believe I knew, like I, I couldn't believe it could be cancer, but um, oncologists, labs, biopsy, testing, and they determined it was chronic lymphocyte leukemia. Mm. Um, had never heard of it before. We were in the faith. We became stronger to where I learned the diagnosis at a payphone by the side of the road. That, that wouldn't have been me a few years ago. I mean, I actually was able to call the doctor 
I was on duty, pulled the police car over, called him. I think we agreed on the time. Dr. Chen said, you have chronic lymphocyte leukemia, it's cancer. Oh, okay. And then whatever, set an appointment. I drove home. I called Debbie. Sounds impersonal, but we had agreed before that I would call her, tell her the news. Debbie got off work. And so we sat on the couch and we cried and we prayed. And we and we began to tell close friends. So it's kind of like similar news, but our whole outlook was different. Mm, because you were both believers at this point. And that's mm. what the difference in the outlook was. Definitely a different perspective and just uh, a growth in our relationship with God at that time. Just really trusting mm. that God has got this. And then pursuing treatment because he, there was at that time in the early 90s, no treatment. It was more of a watch and wait cancer. Like, let's watch and wait and see what happens. So that wasn't good enough for us. So we prayed and uh, sought nutritional advice. And um, Glenn had uh, cancer treatment in Mexico, um, which is also in the book all his adventures in Mexico. So, um, adventures in Mexico <laughs> with cancer treatment. It sounds like quite, was there scorpion drinks with that? Too? There should have been. There should have been, yeah. So, Scorpions are real in Mexico too. Yes, they are. So maybe, so I had the, I had the treatment. It was a uh, inpatient and an outpatient protocol. Um, very expensive, at least to our budget. We received a lot of donations, but in short, uh, lost faith in it, if if you will, because I don't know how many months I had it. I, I probably a couple of years. Well, I, did, I didn't go in remission, and because it, oh, it just it was wasn't very, really working. It was very expensive. Well, you know, maybe it set us up for remission. But so five years later, I gained remission. We celebrated again. It wasn't as extravagant, but I think we went out to dinner. <laughs> we didn't go to Mexico this time. <laughs> no, no, no. Just a steakhouse on the corner. Right. Exactly. But um, And now, so y'all have said, and I know this is in your book too, but there were some amazing blessings that happened. You know, like you said, this is not the story you would have picked, but there were some amazing blessings that came along the way. And you said, you know, you have joyful, beautiful communication. You um, find the happiness in each day. You live in the moment. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those blessings that came from the journey that you never sought to go out on? stop and think before I speak and, uh, you know, ask clarifying questions. It sounds so basic, but think the best of Debbie and uh, find a way to lovingly point out something if I notice maybe I need to, I don't know, maybe help direct Debbie towards something or away from something. So a specific example might be uh, Deb would so come out. This is the communication. I'm sorry, the, the communication. communication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, my example is you might uh, come at me in a wonderful way about wanting to do this or this or travel here or there. And maybe I'm thinking of none of that. So I'm not. I'm not I'm up thinking, for that. 
But we sit down and say, well, tell me now I know to say, tell me more about that. You know, where would that be? When would we go? Gee, what would that cost? Are you talking about someone else going? And then, then we end up talking then and maybe additional other times until we know it's yes or no, got to save up or, you know, yes, we'll take the kids. Um, I love that just being curious too. Yeah, yeah, just curious, being curious because maybe she's just thinking, I need a break. I'm just going to go on a girl's weekend. Like maybe that's what she needs. Oh, and you're thinking, you know, hey, we're going to go windsurfing every day. And no, I'm not up for windsurfing every day. So I love that yeah. piece about just be curious about like, okay, what's this about? What are you wanting? What are you hoping for? And then maybe we can go from there. Maybe we can tweak it so that it makes sense for us. Because I mean, Glenn, are you able like health wise to do a lot of the things that you thought you'd be able to do this age in life? Or are there some restrictions? Uh, I call it marginalized. So I can walk, but, but now at a slower pace where I really become short of breath to include where it stops me in my tracks. I might have to sit down. I can physically drive. I know how to drive. I have a driver's license. I almost never drive as I have some cognitive impairment, concentration issues. And we both agreed, if I can't make a split decision, don't be driving the car. So I've adapted and I have my chauffeur here. You know, I wake up tired. I'm never rested. We don't really go out at night. Yeah, it's it's changed a lot for Debbie. I look to focus on the joy in each day, the beauty that's around and live in the moment because otherwise I get too far ahead and go, you know, this, this, this moment, I can do this moment, but I'll get in trouble or anxious if I look too far ahead, think about my health. So. And some of the blessings um, that we've received um, with our cancer diagnosis is a closer and more intimate marriage where we can share the real things in our lives, like the real thoughts in our head, like our frustration with the illness. And Glenn can share, you know, it's frustrating to me that I can't go out at night anymore. Of course, it's frustrating to me, but we can talk through that. And that's the beautiful communication piece but also like some of the things that you don't think are a blessing like the five years that he had leukemia he was home with our kids Who, what dad gets to stay home with their young sons for five years so now we can look back on that and go that was a blessing you got to be there you got to watch them grow up definitely yeah and then we also adopted a child in 2001 so that was a blessing so that was a big shift in our life at that time as well um Glenn was healthy at that time never seen further down the road for his late effects from the cancer treatments and how he would be you know marginalized as he says in his health Uh, we took on a seven-year-old young man and um adopted him at seven years old and he has taught us so much about unconditional love and because um, <laughs> he needed it, he needed it. <laughs> it um, sounds like may- maybe there should there were a, a few other dicey moments in the beginning there oh yes definitely think blender <laughs> put your life in a blender and <laughs> oh my gosh but maybe it needed that so. yeah yeah well, you, and, speak, you speak about your kids like how did parenting change 
when you have these, you know, limitations or, you know, you have a cancer diagnosis and you have to do these treatments, like how did, and how did your kids react? Like, were they scared? Were they helpful? Like, how did that look like as a parent? Well, first I want to say it didn't change at all. What changed is, I believe, I, I would be encouraged by Debbie to make that football game go to that wrestling tournament mm-hmm. where I could just hit the couch to be at home so tired. I, you know, I went and I wanted to. I'm just saying that it took a lot to overcome to make that Saturday for that sporting event or that Friday night sure. game. And Debbie was always all in. So that rubbed off on me. That was great. And what was their reaction to your cancer? I think that I didn't fully know or appreciate it when they were younger. I think I must have been trying to have some normalcy. Like when you ask the question, I'm thinking, you know what, painted the fence. <laughs> you know, I got them involved in doing the yard work. She went to the games and everything. Um, normalize it as much as we could. Um, do you know if they, did they ever come to you and say his dad kind of? No, they, I, I don't think they ever had a fear. I wonder how it had affected them because of his energy level. Like he wasn't the dad that got out there and threw the football with them or, you know, played baseball with them or ran around like that. Um, but they always looked up to him. And uh, to this day, uh, he is their hero. Mm, of course maybe danielle that's the answer so at the (laughs) moment i didn't know and think but today we see we have a close relationship with them and our two oldest especially because biological they've been with us longer they articulate it and the way i like to put it is i try to turn around on them and say i'm glad that's in you son that he feels loved and bonded with me and wants to be like me in some positive ways of integrity. Um, That's very satisfying. It sounds like you were able to do a lot of the deep work because you couldn't necessarily do the active 40, all that kind of stuff. You were able to say, hey, you know, we're going to have these good talks and I'm going to pray for you. And, you know, all that deep stuff that sometimes parents can miss out on because they're so busy running around doing stuff. Wow. What a blessing. What a blessing. Okay. So I do not want to get off this podcast without talking to you about your book. So Glenn and Debbie have written a book um, called Overcome, a story of intervention, rescue and redemption, our cancer survivorship journey. I love how it says our survivorship journey because it's the both of you. Yes. And so tell our listeners just a little bit about what it's about and where they can find it. Okay. Well, it's our journey from our meeting in 1980. It runs through the course of our life, which includes a cancer journey and many gifts and children and great time together uh, through current day, if you will. I, I believe it will appeal or does appeal to those in the in the Christian faith, whether they've had cancer or not, and then definitely those who have been or are on their cancer journey, caregivers, family, and friends. And I, I would say really chiefly, too, that we all need to be overcome obstacles in our lives. They may look different. I believe folks will have a takeaway on, oh, okay, this became important to them. 
Yeah. And I, I love that too, because it's like, you don't have to have cancer to get the, the wisdom, the love, the, all that, that, that comes from the journey. And um, it's just so beautiful, you guys. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And if you missed writing down the title or whatever, we'll include the link in the show notes of how to get their book and um, what it's about and all that. So you guys, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Talk about a couple that's got grit. All right. So what Debbie's got two little ones, a newborn that is six weeks old and gets a diagnosis that Glenn has cancer and then he has to be hospitalized and she has to keep working. Um, That reminds... That's just grit. It is just grit. Like there's, there's no other word to describe the kind of grit and sacrifices to do that that reminds me of a saying that we like to say a lot is like you find your way over around or through any obstacle that comes your way and i think the story whoo yeah glenn and debbie are a couple that find their way over around or through whatever challenge comes okay so here's the talk about it and now the talk about it session (laughs) where we give you a question to debate and discuss with your spouse Okay, so here's the question this week. Where can you, just like Glenn and Debbie, find a blessing in the midst of a crappy situation? Everybody's got some kind of craziness going on right now. Where can you take something that doesn't look so rosy and say, hey, I'm thankful for this, or let's this is a blessing? It. Yeah, where can you say, let's use this as a chance to grow in our relationship, to make it better and deeper and stronger? All right, let's do it. As always, we're talking about all the hot topics from the podcast and so much more over in our free community on Facebook. So come join the conversation at legendarymarriage.com slash community. You can find this episode and the show notes at legendarymarriage.com slash 085. We want to help more couples have conversations that matter. So if you love this show, then please let us know. Jump on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and review the show so we know how we're doing and other couples can find us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Legendary Marriage Podcast. This is Danielle and Justin reminding you... Don't settle for an ordinary marriage. Make yours legendary. Legendary.